Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we're hearing lots of tales of survival and heroism emerging from Florida in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. We'll speak with a man who swam nearly a kilometer to rescue his mom as storm waters filled her Naples, Florida home. No surprises in the Quebec election as Premier Francois Legault and his Coalition Avenir Quebec steamrolled to another majority. We find out what challenges lie ahead and what it means for Ottawa's relationship with the provinces. One of the worst stadium tragedies in history unfolded over the weekend at a soccer stadium in East Java in Indonesia. One of the world's leading experts in crowd psychology joins me to discuss what went wrong and how we often unfairly blame the crowd reaction in these instances when it's often a matter of crowd management. But first, Canada is imposing new sanctions on Iran following the death of a 22-year-old woman at the hands of the so-called morality police last month. Will they be effective? And why isn't Canada doing more or committing more resources to making sure the many sanctions being imposed are being properly enforced? We're going to start in Ottawa tonight. The federal government announced new sanctions today against 25 senior Iranian officials and nine government entities a week after promising to bar officials from entering Canada and freezing Canadian-held assets. Now, this is all in response to last month's death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, two days after she was arrested by Iran's morality police for allegedly wearing hijab too loosely that sparked weeks of protests and, of course, repression of those protests. Now, the government says the sanctions are meant to target those who enforce repressive measures, violate human rights, and spread the regime's propaganda, and that more sanctions are coming very soon. But the Conservatives in the House of Commons today continue to urge the government to follow through on a motion the House of Commons adopted back in 2018 to designate Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terror group. This terrorist organization murdered over 50 Canadians by shooting down a civilian aircraft over two years ago. This government promised they would ban that terrorist organization not long after that. They still haven't done it. It is perfectly legal for that group to raise money, organize logistics on Canadian soil after it killed our people. What is happening in Iran is completely unacceptable. This is the regime that is persecuting women. This is the same regime that decided to uh, down fight PS752. Therefore, we are sanctioning the RGC's core leadership. We are imposing new sanctions. And you know what, Mr. Speaker, we will do more because more needs to be done. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev there and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie responding. Now, Canada's latest rounds of sanctions on Iran come just days after new sanctions against Russia. But it is one thing to announce sanctions, which they've been doing a lot of late, but quite another to have the proper structure in place to enforce them. And that's where it gets tricky. Joining me now is John Boscariel. He's a partner and head of McCarthy Tetros International Trade and Investment Law Group. He's often testified on Parliament Hill about enforcement of economic sanctions and anti-terrorism laws. Thanks for your time tonight. Great to be here, Ben. I guess to start with these Iran sanctions, we knew they were coming, um, but just the impact of them, and are they are they enough, do you think? Uh, it is a good question, and, and we did know they were coming. Um, the Prime Minister announced something was coming last week, so we were all watching for it carefully. Uh, we already have a sanctions program in place against Iran. We've had that in place for many years. Up until about 2016, it was a full, pretty much a full trade embargo on doing business with Iran. But starting in February of 2016 uh, forward, 
Canada relaxed those sanctions significantly to the point where they were largely, uh, even today, largely focused on just not providing uh, weapons or items for nuclear development or dealing with parties on a list. And essentially what's happened today is now that we've seen the sanctions that have been issued in response to the killing of Masa Amina, Amini is that they have added uh, about 34 names of individuals and entities to that sanctions list. Um, now, if, if you were to ask me, is that going to have a huge impact? Um, it, it's, it's a good question because I suspect those individuals and entities don't do a lot of business with Canada. Uh, they don't do business with Canadian banks. Uh, and so uh, the impact will, I expect, be largely symbolic. Um, it's Canada's way of condemning the action as, as best it can. And it's really a signal to Canadian companies that um, going forward, they cannot do business involving these entities or these individuals. I would imagine it, all, it again also sends that wider signal. If if the sanctions regime had been relaxed, and this signifies a tightening of it once again, I would think. It, it is a tightening of it, but if we compare it to the Russia sanctions, for example, it is still much more relaxed than the Russia sanctions. So again, these are sanctions that are largely based on lists of individuals and entities you can't do business with. Um, the individuals and entities on those lists aren't um, really part of the international economy in any event. Not Certainly not the same way we had Russian banks and uh, businesses owned by Russian oligarchs, which were integrated into the international economy and financial system. Here, these are players that are largely isolated in any event because of their base in Iran. And so um, it, it really... Canada could have taken more aggressive steps, um, for example, to ban all exports to or imports from Iran or to uh, prohibit uh, financial services being provided for the benefit of Iran or persons in Iran. They didn't go that far, uh, but clearly uh, it seems that they wanted to at least send out a signal that uh, they, they, more than just words in terms of condemning the killing of Masa Amina, Amini, but actually putting in that that I think um, a little more substantive. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly targeting uh, people who would be, you know, at least at the top of the pyramid when it came uh, to that to that killing, uh, including the IRGC, the commander in chief, as well as the head of the morality police as well. Now, there's been a lot of talk about about declaring the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist entity. I'm not sure you can speak to that. But yeah. certainly that, that will come up again, no doubt, in reaction to what was announced today. It, it will. Um, the IRGC is already on our sanctions list. So for these sanctions that were announced today that added the IRGC's Cyber Defense Command, um, that I'm not sure that actually added much because the IRGC as an entity is already sanctioned. The significance, though, of adding them to the terrorist list um, is is uh, quite important to note. If if Canada were to do that, you know, that would be the equivalent of doing um, what we've done to the Taliban, uh, to the Proud Boys, for example, uh, and other organizations that Canada truly considers to be terrorist in nature. 
And once someone is added to that list, it's a different list that's under our criminal code. Uh, but there's very little you can do with that entity. Uh, and actually, the government doesn't even have an ability to issue you a license to allow you to do anything with that entity. So it's stricter than sanctions. It's a step up. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how much extra it would actually uh, mean in terms of not doing business with the IRGC, because already we cannot do business with the IRGC because they're on the sanctions list. It's always difficult in these situations to try to separate politics from policy, of course, right? I mean, there's so much comes out about what isn't there. Uh, you mentioned earlier that these sanctions are mostly symbolic. But at this point in time, as you also mentioned, beyond symbolic, uh, what exactly can the government do to, to, to put pressure on the regime um, to change course here? Uh, you know, certainly in the years uh, from when the Harper government was uh, was in charge of things up in Ottawa, we saw the sanctions get very aggressive. And then when the Trudeau government came in and we had the JCPOA negotiated with Iran between the UN, US and Iran, um, you saw those sanctions peel back significantly. But at the same time, there's still, uh, there's some, but not a lot of Canadian companies that would even be doing business today with Iran. Uh, because of that, I think there's a limited impact Canada can have. Canada does take a leadership role, I would say, internationally in, in imposing sanctions and acting in a coordinated, coordinated way with our allies in the United Kingdom and the United States, the European Union. At the end of the day, um, we have nowhere near the economic connections or financial connections that we had with, for example, prior to the invasion of Ukraine. And so uh, from an economic point of view, I think um, in terms of economic relations between and Iran, it's going to have limited impact. And, and I'm not sure there's much more on the sanction side you can do to really change behavior other than these kind of symbolic moves. John Boscario is our guest this half hour. He's a partner and head of McCarthy Tetro's International Trade and Investment Law Group. We've been talking about sanctions, new ones imposed today by Canada on a number of people in Iran, uh, specifically within the Revolutionary Guard, as well as the head of the Morality Police, the chief of staff of Iran's armed forces. This is all in reaction to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in mid-September, uh, who died in custody of Iran's Morality Police after allegedly wearing her hijab too loosely and being stopped on the streets of Tehran, uh, and the protests that have followed, and the calls as well. The other countries have been imposing these sanctions as well. Um, John, we've been seeing a lot of sanctions announcements recently, and sometimes it's hard to sort of field through them to see if they're actually working or not. A lot, you know, new round on Friday against Russia in response to the uh, illegal annexation of four Ukrainian uh, provinces or oblasts. Um, are, are we, are we, are they having an impact and are, do we have enough in place to actually enforce these sanctions that we, that we're imposing? It seems uh, quite often now. It's a good question. I think it's an important question, Ben. Um, I think, uh, first, we can say that as an important member of a coalition of countries that are imposing sanctions against targets, and let's take Russia, for, for example, it is important that Canada have these measures in place or else it will be a vehicle through which a lot of um, that activity could um, take place to evade sanctions in our ally countries, uh, in our ally members. So it's important that Canada be seen to be fully aligned with the UK, the EU, and the United States with these measures. 
In fact, in the case of Russia, many aspects of the Canadian sanctions are more aggressive than those of the EU uh, and the United Kingdom. Uh, and that's, it's a bit of a surprise, but the way Canada drafts some of these measures, they have been uh, more aggressive than the Allies. Uh, on the enforcement side, on the administration side, it's a bit of a different issue. Although we have very aggressive measures on paper, and uh, they appear to be very aggressive, um, Canada just doesn't have the same level of resources that the EU or the United States has devoted to sanctions enforcement. Uh, and you know, largely that's, that's a numbers game. Um, Canada is a bit of a, a newcomer to um, uh, the sanctions enforcement uh, game, if you will. Uh, the United States has been doing this for decades. Uh, they are very well resourced. The Office of Foreign Assets Control in the United States, which enforces these, is um, a very large organization, many, many times the size of the group in Canada that's responsible for administering these sanctions. So there's there's a resource issue there um, as well. You know, the, the RCMP here in Canada are responsible for enforcing sanctions. And uh, although I can tell you there's enforcement going on behind the scenes, we just don't have the same I think kind of public name and shame approach that you'd see in the United States and some other jurisdictions. Uh, and we don't have the same level of penalties in the United States, penalties for sanctions violations um, and, and settlements that you see from time to time are in the hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars. And we're not even close to that here in Canada. Uh, so Canada has some way to go. I, I think uh, the government officials here within the bureaucracy at Global Affairs Canada are doing the very best they can to administer these laws, but um, it, it's largely a game of catch-up for them. The, the government and the politicians are imposing some very aggressive measures, um, but I, I think more resources would be needed to actually enforce and, and administer those measures in a way that's going to be more effective for Canada. Does it undermine Canada's credibility if we can't enforce these sanctions? I mean, you mentioned that we are meant to be in lockstep, to use a term that we probably use too often, with our allies here so that we don't become, um, you know, sort of an Achilles heel in this whole sanctions uh, strategy. At the same time, if we can't enforce them, it would suggest that there it may undermine our credibility if, for instance, it were to be caught, it found out that somehow people were evading uh, these sanctions in Canada because we weren't able to catch them. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I, I think there is a risk of Canada being seen as, as a means of evasion if the enforcement isn't sufficient. Now, Canada has put in place some measures, um, including, for example, um, uh, measures that allow the government to confiscate the property of parties that are sanctioned um, under our sanctions regime and sell that property and distribute the proceeds for various purposes and including in the case of the Russia sanctions, the, the rebuilding of Ukraine. Um, so the, the measures are certainly there. Uh, the messaging is there. Um, but I, I do think uh, on the administration side, and, and when I say administration, I'm, I'm not just talking about enforcement uh, in terms of the cops going out there and beating down the doors of companies and finding out what they're doing with Russia. It's really having 
um, a communication, a very strong communication with the business community in Canada. That's important where government um, works closely with the business community, uh, makes it very clear as to what these sanctions mean for the business community and gets cooperation and enforcing them internationally. Um, Canada could do a better job on that. And, and that's not, again, not because of uh, the small number of officials that are within the government right now that are responsible for enforcing and administering. It's really a matter of devoting sufficient resources. John Boscario, thank you so much for your time. Uh, great to be here. Thank you, Ben. Uh, let's head to Florida now. We talked a lot last week, late last week, about the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, just how devastating it was. I'm sure you followed that over the weekend. Um, people are kayaking down streets in some remaining areas that don't have power. Days after Hurricane Ian carved a path of destruction on Florida's barrier islands, as well as on the um, on the mainland as well. Uh, hurricane victim Thomas Fisher says all he has left is loads of luggage in his vehicle. The floors are, are ruined, the walls are down, the ceilings have all dropped down, the water level is above the roof. The whole thing is, this is everything we can salvage, it's our lives. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was in Arcadia today viewing the aftermath. He called the devastation, quote, a 500-year flood event. The overall death toll has risen to 61 in Florida alone. Rescue teams have been using helicopters, boats, and jet skis to evacuate people over the past several days. We're also hearing a lot of stories of survival and a few about some really few about just pure bravery, really daring rescues. As Hurricane Ian battered Florida last week, leaving neighborhoods in the area of Naples in Florida, looking like they had been swallowed by a river. As one description goes, Johnny Louder dove into the murky water and that others were trying to escape, all to try to reach his 84-year-old mom. He doesn't live too far away, uh, but she uses a wheelchair. Uh, she lives a few blocks away, and she needed help. And so Johnny braved the waters and headed over there. And that's when, again, the former Chicago police officer, he was also a rescue diver, uh, but still, that must have been an incredible scenario. And then just the adrenaline going through you, knowing that you had to get there uh, to help your mom out. And luckily enough, it's late in Florida tonight, but Johnny Louder is here with us now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. What a, I mean, I, we've seen so many, we've seen the images of the water. Um, yes. I'm wondering what it was like for you. You were in Naples. Your mom lives not too, too far away, but you must have realized at some point that that was an awful lot of water coming at you. Yeah, it's, um, it's, my mom is, uh, we were actually at my son's house. Um, I live four blocks away from my son's house and my mom lives four blocks away from his house, probably about a half okay. mile. And, um, we saw the signs and the warnings were coming. Um, I wanted to get everybody out. Um, my wife luckily is in Las Vegas with my mother-in-law visiting family there. They were on vacation before even was even a factor. Um, but my mom, um, I guess I would say special and stubborn is a light way of putting it, uh, refused to leave. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yes, we've all known. Boys, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my boys who are uh, 20 and 26, I'm a 26 year old. Uh, they didn't want to leave uh, town. They thought it was going to be like uh, Irma. We were going to have maybe a foot of water. We're in a low-lying zone. We're right next to the coast. And um, I wasn't going to abandon the family. So even if my boys would have went to a shelter, there's no way I could have went uh, with them. My mom refused to have anybody at the house with her. She's, again, special. And uh, yeah. I knew something was going to happen. Um, I'm not a social media guy. I'm not a Facebook person. But um, my wife being, you know, away and I have family in Miami, family in Chicago, 
everybody's worried. Um, the easiest way for me to communicate that we're okay was I was just snapping pictures and short videos just to say, hey, we're alive. So we're at my son's house. Um, I knew that once the eye had passed us, all that water that was pushed out to the Gulf was going to want to come back. And um, we're watching TV, and next thing I know, my son yells out, the water's here, and uh, there's about three feet of water outside the window. Um, the sliding glass doors had six inches of water already accumulated, and within 15 minutes, if that, uh, we were looking at about two feet of water pushing against the glass. Um, at that time, I knew it was uh, switched his hit. It's time for me to go. Um, I took the family, and we, they have a, it's a small flat house, like a ranch house. There's no attic, but there's a scuttle in one of the bedrooms, uh, which is the little hatches that go into, like, the uh, cross Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I pushed my, uh, I made sure my uh, two boys and uh, my son's girlfriend, a uh, bunny, a bird, and a, a 22-pound cat got up in there safely. Uh, they had food, flashlights, phones, and, uh, and a way to break through the roof if need be. And once I knew they were in there, then I basically dove out the window. Um, the I mean, water just, was cold. <laughs> I'm sure. So listeners know, I mean, you're a former police officer. I mean, you know what it's like to be in a dangerous situation. This sounds like you yeah. jumped, like you knew that this was dangerous, that this was going to be bad. Yeah. I, when when the water was getting up high, I had my youngest, actually, um, on the phone with my mom the whole time. And I was, you know, it's uh, I go into go mode. My my whole family's like this. We're, we're very laser focused and uh, in crunch time. And you know, I, I'm like, update, sit rep, you know, we're, we're calling it out. And she's like, grandma reports it's at her at her butt in the wheelchair. And then once they said belly button, then it's like, oh, God, you know, this is going to keep coming. I got to go. So um, when I got out the window, the water was still rising. Um, our cars are, are gone. Uh, I mean, they were, it was halfway up the car at the time. It was already over the hoods of the vehicles and we're like up on a little bitty hill. Um, I got to the street and... Um, it's, I've been in, you know, kayaking and rafting in level five rapids and, um, this, I can't even explain it. It didn't feel like a current. It felt like the earth was moving because it just looked like the, the ground was moving beneath you. Um, were you trying to, were you trying to walk? Were you walking um, at this point or you're trying to walk? Tra- chest deep water. Uh, some yeah. spots I got lucky and it was at my belly button, but, um, the force was moving against me. So when right. getting to the corner. Uh, they're about a half block from my mom's street. And then it was like a straight shot. To, she's at the very end of the street. So that half mile felt like a uh, hundred miles, but I got to the corner and I'm like, God, just give me a boat. And I looked to my right and there's a boat there, but unfortunately it was on a trailer and it was chained up in no key, but I was able to grab a life jacket, uh, cushion. And, uh, I just had to make my way straight. There were vans floating past me, cars floating. Uh, it was surreal. Um, I kept stopping to get catch my breath, uh, make sure that, you know, everything, you know, did like a check. And uh, my, uh, of course, my Apple Watch and my iPhone are waterproof, and everybody's texting me. You know, my wife's worried, my kids in the attic are worried, everybody's wondering if I'm okay. So I couldn't text, my hands were wet, so I just did the next best thing. I, I was taking pictures and short videos, not realizing I was documenting the whole ordeal. Um uh-huh. Yeah, and I, once I got on her street, the current was definitely against me. Um, I was using that flotation device to the best of my abilities, which is large. And as I stopped to look at a couple, all of the bells on the power lines were arcing. Um, it was um, surreal and pretty at the same time. And when 
the streets were clear. It looked like a lake. I looked up at one of the bells, and when I looked down, there's this kneeboard just floated in front of me as if some, some higher power had put it right. there. And wow. I grabbed that, and that actually made me cutting through the water, you know, like 50% easier. Um, didn't wow. stop, didn't stop. Um, got to my mom's uh, courtyard area where her little buildings are. And finally, I felt a, a release and ease that the pressure, there was no more current on me. It felt like now I was like standing in a, in a lake, you know, about chest deep, like a swimming pool even. There was no, no current, no anything. Uh, made a couple more status reports, got to her house as quick as I can. Um, when I got to the door, nothing would budge. Our, floor, our doors down here open outward, most of them do, because of right. hurricanes. They don't open inward. So it was too much pressure against me. I couldn't open the door. I heard her screaming inside. Um, she was actually on the phone with my son and yelling to me. Um, it was uh, scary and a sigh of relief at the same time. Scary. I thought, oh, my God, she's trapped under something. Uh, she could be hurt. Uh, and a sigh of relief knowing that there was air still in her lungs. So made it to the back window, popped the back window off, and snapped a picture of her so that the family would know Grandma's safe. And uh, that's the picture that I guess has been seen everywhere now. And um, I've yeah. never seen her happier to see me. I was expecting her to say, what took you so long, and did you bring me cigarettes? But uh, uh, she was she was just elated, and I was too. And I dove through the window. I knew that uh, she had been in that water a long time. She has a skin condition, which doctors can't figure out what it is. Um, after she had a shingles shot or something, her skin, um, it gets like uh, blisters on it, and it's open wounds, and right. they don't really close. So her being in that bile, mucky water, I, I know wasn't good. So I, you know, this refrigerator's floating around her. I, I pulled it to the side. I stacked a table on another table and um, used the flotation device, propped her up on there, and she was shivering like a chihuahua. And I knew, you know, from my past training that that's the onset of hypothermia, and I got to get her warm. So I went to her rooms, and, and lo and behold, the only thing dry in that entire house was uh, some blue sheets. And I reached up, grabbed them, I came back in the kitchen, and she's like, not those, those are the good sheets. And I'm like, no, this is what you're getting wrapped in. Again, she's very special. <laughs> so yeah. wrapped her up, yeah. um, kept her warm, and then we were riding it out. And I'm like, if this water rises higher and I have to hold her head above water, put the life vest on her and tread, then so be it. You know. How did you get her, how did you manage to, to, move, to move back out? Yeah, what we did is uh, I, of course, said another status report to the family the little video um and then uh my youngest son i, I couldn't be more proud of both my boys they're, they're so selfish i mean they're um my wife calls them they're my mini knees but um they uh my youngest knew that when the water was halfway down to start making his way to grandma to help me get her evac and get her out of there and um so we uh as soon as the water was down we were there for about three hours dealing with the water and then after three hours that's when my son showed up um, he opened the front door, um, water came out, and then we had to get her over all the rubble and furniture and stuff. And then as we were leaving, I documented a little bit there as well, too, so my wife and everybody would be, you know, relaxed, that boy, grandma, I'm okay. Um, and then I didn't record the trek back, which was, it took us an hour and 15 minutes to make that walk. Even though that the water had subsided, it was still up to my mom's chest in the wheelchair, and it was pushing right. sideways. So my son was pushing my mom and I happened to see another elderly neighbor of hers. Uh, it was a Haitian lady and uh, my Creole and French isn't the greatest. I speak Spanish, but I 
I understood enough to know that she said she has arthritis and can't move. She had all her possessions in a garbage bag, so I didn't have a free hand to take any pictures. I put her over my shoulders and um, grabbed her possessions, and we walked the whole trek back and got to dry ground where there was a hotel. I got her to the hotel. I said, call your family, tell them you're fine. Tried to get my mom in the hotel. Of course, there's no rooms. They said, sorry, you can't be in the lobby. So then we had to make the trek to my son's house, which fortunately, the house that we, I initially left from only got about a foot of water throughout the whole house. Um, so once the water subsided, we were able to open all doors, you know, sweep the water out. My boys work for an air conditioning company. They, um, so my son's girlfriend's uncle owned it. Um, right. And my boys immediately went to work. It's, it's so funny because, I mean, we're so blessed. Um, all of Southwest Florida, 90% was without power. And my little area here, which is close to the coast, we had electricity. So wow. they brought out fans and dehumidifiers, and we're trying to make everything livable. My boys are running around the neighborhood, changing capacitors on everybody's AC to make sure that everybody's fine and help uh, you know, make sure they're back up to normal. What normal I guess is. all's well that ends well, Johnny. That's uh, And your mom's okay, right? She's, she's, she's recovering? She's, she's all right? She's She's now, we, we put her in the hospital the next day because even though we got her here, we um, went back to her house to get a special bench that gets her into the bathtub. Um, I knew with those open sores and the bacteria in the water, here, there's so much in the water, Florida, that can kill you aside from gators yeah. and sharks. And um, the next morning we got the alert that it was a boil notice. So the washing of her that we did was probably in vain. But we called EMS, uh, ambulance came, took her to Naples Community Hospital. And we were right. Um, she had some bacteria infections in some of the wounds, but they treated her. She's in a warm bed. Um, you know, she's she's safe. It's one less concern. You know, Perfect. we lost. If, she lost everything. I lost well, everything. But, but we didn't lose family. And I didn't lose my job. And we didn't lose hope. So, yeah, I, I guess that's that was the I was wanted to. I, I guess what now what lies ahead is tough, right? You gotta you gotta try to rebuild what was lost. My wife. Yeah. She can't come back because the flights are canceled, and I told her to stay with her family there. We'll get things set up. I went to work the very next day. I worked for a provisioner, and it's basically deli meats. And when powers are out, nobody's buying chicken and steak. They're buying lunch meat. So right. my boss looked at me like I was nuts, like, what are you doing here? And, you know, I'm like, I need the help. And uh, I wasn't going to worry about anything else just yet, you know. And uh, no. so far, my sister-in-law in Miami started a GoFundMe for us, and, I didn't even know what that was, and um, I'm just like speechless in the amount of people who have reached out to try to help us, and so many other people lost their lives and a lot more, and it's just uh, humbling, you know. So it's I, I always say well, it's like, yeah. life is like a computer; it has two buttons. Uh, there's the power button and the reset button. And thank God it was just our reset button. We'll be okay. Exactly, and I recommend if listeners get a chance, there's the photo of Johnny and his uh, and his mum. Uh, that you can see with her smiling, which is a just, it's a great, it's a great photo considering the circumstances. Johnny Louder, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I'm no, it's great to hear that everyone's okay. Time. And yeah, and it's, uh, I'm, yeah, I really appreciate it. I know it's late there, so I hope you get some rest and uh, yeah, I hope the rebuild is, goes well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank you Johnny so Louder, much. Thank you so thank much. You. Take care. Let's go to Quebec. Quebecers uh, tonight, today, headed to the polls. The outcome was really never in doubt. Everyone uh, was pretty sure that uh, the Colesio Avenir Quebec, who are the incumbent party, and Premier Francois Legault were going to build on the 76 seats they came into this with. Um, it was just a question of how much they would build and 
what would happen to everybody else? Who would be the official opposition? There were some parties that you may be familiar with, the Quebec Liberals, who had been in power for most of this uh, century until Francois Legault came along in 2018. Uh, there was the Parti Québécois, of course, who another name you may recognize. Those two parties, of course, fought it out for years. They were really the only two parties for a very long time, other than a bit of a blip in the early knots with uh, Mario Dumont and Action Démocratique, they were called. Um, and then there were some new parties. Um, Quebec Solidaire is more of a left-wing party, also pro sovereignty more left-wing, a little bit less vocal in this election about the sovereignist aspect of things. Uh, but we were looking to see what they may do. Uh, and then there was a conservative party that have really never had any traction in the province whatsoever. Uh, but under their leader, Eric Duhem, they were uh, looking to maybe gain some seats. They certainly thought they could gain a bunch of votes. They didn't have a very efficient uh, vote out there, spread out quite quite widely, based a lot on issues such as mandates and so on. That may sound familiar to you. Um, so lots to talk about about what else happened other than the majority. But the majority is certainly worth talking about. Here's, uh, here's how Global News announced the win about 12 minutes into, into, the, into the coverage or 12 minutes after polls closed. We have some breaking news for you. Global News is projecting that the Coalition Avenir Quebec will form a majority government. So there is the win. Again, um, it came quickly, which seems to happen quite often in provincial elections these days. Uh, but that was a quick, uh, there was no other way around it. It was obvious from the get-go uh, that François Legault had a big majority on his hands. The question was, how big? Um, and as we went into the evening, it became obvious it was going to be very big indeed. Uh, so at last count, 89 seats is what they have. Um, again, they only had 76 coming in. Uh, you need 63 to win. So 89 they had. Um, and the Liberals, the Quebec Solidaire, Patsy Québécois, and the Conservative Party trailed far behind. I'll give you a quick count as to where they are now. So it's 89 now for the CAQ and François Legault, 23 for the Liberals, which isn't actually as bad as it looked earlier in the evening. I believe they had 27 going in. So while it's a loss, and they did get knocked out of a few places off the island of Montreal, but in and around Montreal, uh, it's not terrible. They didn't get a lot of votes, though. Their vote was very efficient on the island of Montreal. Quebec Solidaire with 10 not great. Uh, the Parti Québécois with just three. So the continued, continued deterioration of the Parti Québécois. And uh, the Conservative Party did really well. I mean, they got 13% of the vote, which is in the same ballpark as the other three parties that aren't the Coalition Avenir Québec, but no seats. Um, their leader, Eric Duhem, lost his. So no seats, but certainly some opportunities. If you're the progressive conservatives sitting in Ottawa looking at Quebec and looking at the nearly 500,000 votes that the Quebec Conservative Party got out of almost nothing going into this, I think you'd be pretty encouraged by all of that. But 89 seats for um, the Coalition Avenir Quebec. Now, to put that in a historical perspective, you have to go back to the 80s for the last time that a someone won two straight majorities that was Robert Bourassa in uh, 85 and 88 and the fact is that these are numbers not seen since Bourassa had those wins both against Jacques Parizeau in uh, 89 or 88 rather and against uh, Pierre-Marc Johnson in 84 85 where he also won 90 95 seats so we're talking historical territory tonight for the Coalition Avenir Quebec um there's been a reaction to it obviously um 
Geneviève Guilbeault, who served as Deputy Premier and Public Security Minister in Legault's government, says she's grateful to Quebecers for returning her and her party to office. She says the victory was the result of hard work by Legault. Of course she did. And the rest of the party's candidates. To see tonight that Quebecers chose to place their trust in us again for four more years... We are so very grateful and so excited and so impatient to keep on the good work for making Quebec prouder, more green and uh, more rich. Party headquarters there in Quebec City, where it was a, a happy place to be tonight for the Coalition Avenir Quebec. Uh, some congratulations rolled in quite quickly. The Prime Minister from Ottawa saying on behalf of the Government of Canada, I'd like to congratulate Francois Legault and the Coalition Avenir Quebec on their re-election. I look forward to con- continuing to work with Premier Legault and the Government of Quebec to address issues of importance to Quebecers and all Canadians. Doug Ford, by the way, he and Francois Legault seem to be quite close. Doug Ford, of course, steamrolled his way to victory not that long ago. So the two of them have tasted victory once again. They'll be at the Premier's table together once again. He wrote, I'm thrilled to see my friend Premier Francois Legault receive another strong mandate from the people of Quebec. Let's keep building deeper ties between our two provinces and strengthen the economic bonds between us that create good paying jobs. Félicitations, mon ami, said Doug um, in French to Francois Legault. Um, a few things to point out that are interesting. The island of Montreal did not vote for the Coalition Avenir Quebec in any real way. They voted for everybody but. Everybody off the island of Montreal, except for those suburbs around Montreal, Laval, which is a big suburb to the north and the south shore of Montreal, everywhere outside of there voted for just about everybody voted just about only for the for the Coalition Avenir Quebec. If you look at it, I think there's only six seats outside of the greater Montreal area that didn't vote CAQ. So you almost have a one-party state outside of uh, outside of uh, outside of Montreal, um, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. He has a huge mandate. He has a ton of MLAs to worry about. He has to recreate a new cabinet, and he also got into power. I mean, this whole campaign, this whole government in the last few years, was resoundingly criticized by minority groups. Part of it was Bill 21, which prevented people from wearing religious symbols in the public service, including teachers. There was a lot of stories about that. Um, there was certainly a lot of attacks on language through Bill 96, I believe it is, a lot of attacks on the English language, on other languages being used in the House. It was interesting to see the New York Times headline today that says, um, Quebec government rides nationalism to victory. And it's an interesting nationalism because it's not sovereignty. It's not talking about separation. It's different. In fact, one of Legault's great talents here is, is that his party has stopped talking about sovereignty altogether, really, uh, in favor of something a bit more nuanced. And certainly, it seems a lot more popular. Uh, we had to wait for Francois Legault to finish his victory speech in Montreal with lots of cheers to allow Daniel Bélan, who was uh, doing some commentary for Global TV, for Global Quebec tonight, to find a quiet spot to talk to us. He's the director at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. And uh, Danielle, thank you so much for your time tonight. You've been busy. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, it's very, very noisy here. I just left the main room. We are the uh, Théâtre Capitole in Quebec City, and that's where the the CQ has the, they have their electoral night, and of course, people here are very happy. François Legault just spoke, uh, right. and so uh, he got, of course, a, a standing ovation. I would imagine uh, the, the capital that, that's right beside the walls, right? It's almost as you walk into the old city, is it not? Exactly. Yes, it's a it's a yeah. beautiful building, actually. Yes. I mean, 
everyone knew that Francois Legault was going to, that, that Coalition Avenir Quebec was going to do well tonight. Did they outperform expectations or is this about, about where we thought they would land? Yeah, I think it's about uh, what, what polls indicated on average uh, in terms of the number of seats and popular votes, you know, around 40% and uh, quite a few seats, uh, close to 90 that's really an excellent performance. You know, it's the first time in Quebec since uh, 1989 uh, uh, with Robert Bourassa that uh, a party leader uh, is able to actually uh, bring a, a second uh, consecutive majority uh, government uh, to its party. And so Francois Legault uh, tonight um, um, is very happy, of course, because despite a, really a subpar campaign in many ways, uh, the party remains strong in the polls. Uh, and they were uh, really able to perform extremely well outside of Montreal. Uh, on the yes. island of Montreal, they only won one. They, right now, they, they have, I think, one seat out of 27, which is even worse than what they uh, got last time. But outside of Montreal, they rule. They are really powerful. Yeah, I was saying, Danielle, it looks like a one-party state outside of Montreal right now. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, exactly. essentially every, everyone voted for... Uh, now, François Legault came into this election. I mean, there's obviously been concern amongst um, minority groups in Quebec, ang- you know, English-speaking, the English-speaking minority in Montreal, about some of the tone of François Legault's nationalism, some of what's been said about immigration. Uh, was he, was, did he extend an olive branch in his, uh, in his victory speech tonight? Yes. Yeah, so he said that no, no political party in Quebec is against immigration. Uh, so he did, uh, he did state that he supports immigration, but he also, of course, emphasized the, uh, the importance of, uh, uh, protecting, uh, the French language. So, um, he said also a few words in English for the Anglophone community, although Legault is not well liked uh, on average among Anglophones. And we saw again on the island of Montreal in more Anglophone areas, the liberals, uh, the liberals remain strong. If you look at the island of Montreal, it's basically dominated by, the Liberals, and uh, to a lesser extent, in more francophone areas, Quebec Solidaire, which is a, a left-wing party. Uh, but outside of Montreal, uh, uh, Co- Coalition Avenir Quebec is, is extremely strong. They, they have won like 90% of the seats outside of Montreal, so it's, uh, it's quite a stunning victory. It is a major victory. Uh, tell me a bit about how the other parties did, because the Liberals will form the official opposition once again. Um, Quebec Solidaire did not do perhaps as well as they had hoped. The Parti Québécois did did not very well at all. And the Conservatives won no seats, but they almost have all the same amount of votes, which speaks a lot about, and we talked about this last time we spoke, about just how efficient one's vote is. And uh, certainly the Liberal vote was very efficient tonight. Yes. So in the first-past-the-post system, the geographical concentration of, of votes is really a major asset. So the Liberals in West Island and Anglophone areas on the island of Montreal, uh, you know, they, they won a lot of seats, uh, even if across the province. Uh, they, they are, they, they've done really poorly, less than 15% of popular vote across the province, which is really, uh, really uh, bad for the Liberals. I mean, this is the worst result, electoral results for the Liberals ever even worse than in 2018. So, yes, they are still the official opposition, but it, these are not good results. But the expectations were so low at the beginning of the campaign that they were able at, at least to salvage most of their seats, even if they have fewer seats than uh, back in 2018. Uh, for the Quebec Solidaire, it's pr- pretty much stagnation. The Parti Québécois, only three seats. Uh, they won 10 last time. Uh, and in terms of popular vote, yes, you know, it's uh, 15%. But for the Parti Québécois, it's still quite low. And then the Conservatives, no seat with 13 
percent of the vote, uh, um, that, of course, is leading to new calls among uh, conservatives and people in the, uh, within Quebec Solidaire and, and the Parti Québécois to call for electoral reform uh, because the first-past-the-post system obviously uh, gives disproportionate uh, uh, power to uh, or dis, a disproportionate number of seats to the Liberals and the CEQ, but the other parties really are shortchanged by the system. I would be shocked if Francois Legault thought electoral reform would be a good idea in the next four years because no, it you seems know, to have done when he was very, in the opposition, yeah. yes, when he was in the opposition in 2018 before the elections, he supported uh, electoral reform. And once he became premier, well, he said, no, finally, we, you know, we, we are not moving forward. And even said during the campaign that electoral reform was only something that intellectuals cared about. And here, intellectuals was more of a, a slur than a compliment, yes. obviously. Uh, but uh, no, I think François Legault is not mo- going to move in that direction. And why will he? Because, again, it's like Justin Trudeau at the federal level. When the system works for you, why would you change it once you're in power? And frankly, the liberals don't have any appetite to, to change the system because even if they are, you know, finished far in second place, they still have quite a few seats for only 14 percent of the popular vote. So I think that the two dominant parties, so the, the party in power and the official opposition, they both benefit from the status quo. So the system won't change anytime soon. Always the way. I just have a couple of quick questions and I'll let you go, Daniel. I know it's been a long night for you. Um, what will this mean for provincial relations with Ottawa because you have Doug Ford back at the table, François Legault back at the table, both with big mandates. Doug Ford congratulated Legault a little earlier. Obviously, you have the premiers from out west. Uh, Justin Trudeau is going to face a formidable, formidable foes across the table when it comes to dealing with the premiers still. Yes, you know, there is no secret that uh, François Legault prefers the conservatives and, and I would say even if he doesn't say it openly, the, the bloc, then the liberals in terms of, you know, interaction with the with uh, the, the, the federal level, but, you know, uh, he has to uh, work with, uh, with Justin Trudeau, and they were able to work together in the past this, despite their differences. Uh, I think immigration will be a point of contention, um, and, 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 you know, they obviously, uh, François Legault is likely to, to push for more powers, and uh, it will be unlikely if Justin Trudeau will just cave and give him uh, what, what, what he wants. And so I think that there will be quite a few... Uh, I would say sources of tension in intergovernmental relations between uh, uh, Trudeau and, and uh, Legault. At the same time, you know, Justin Trudeau knows that some of his voters at the federal level are, are CEQ voters at the provincial level. And he has been quite, you know, uh, diplomatic in his interactions with François Legault. Uh, and, and so I, I don't expect, you know, uh, uh, Trudeau to go after Legault in, in a dramatic way. Um, but Still, I think there will be tensions moving forward, and Legault will work with other premiers, including Doug Ford, uh, on healthcare funding and other files, uh, uh, in a way that certainly will, uh, uh, you know, uh, challenge uh, the, the position of the, the Liberal Party uh, uh, and Justin Trudeau. I saw that the Prime Minister congratulated Francois Legault tonight, of course. I have about 30, 45 seconds left. For Pierre Poliev, a good night tonight. Does he see any growth with what uh, the Conservative Party in Quebec did tonight with, with the CAC winning again? Is there room for growth? Would, would you be happy if you were the Conservatives tonight? Yes, I think so. I think that the CEQ, again, last time at the, in 2021, you know, during the federal campaign, Francois Legault more or less endorsed the Conservatives and, and really... Uh, told Quebecers that, you know, the Conservatives will be uh, good for Quebec. 
But in the end, this didn't really affect voters in Quebec that much because the Conservatives did not do so well during the last campaign. But I think the fact that the CQ is still strong and also the rise of the Conservative Party of Quebec, still, you know, if you get 13% of the votes and you add that to, you know, the, the CQ voters who federally support the Conservatives, that starts to, that could become quite interesting for uh, um, the, the federal Conservatives. Um, you know, Pierre Poilievre actually knows Eric Duhem, the conservative leader, quite well. And so there could be a synergy there. Unfortunately uh, for Duhem, he didn't win a seat in the National Assembly. The conservatives provincially have no seats. So that's maybe not as good uh, in that sense in terms of collaborating with the federal conservatives. But obviously uh, the votes are there in terms of CAQ uh, voters, older francophone voters who are quite conservative in terms of their values. And that's an opportunity for Pierre Poilievre uh, and, and the, the federal conservatives. Well, Daniel Benoit, I'll let you get back to the celebrations at uh, CAQ headquarters in Quebec City. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Maybe because I grew up in the 80s, I have really vivid memories of some of those horrific soccer stadium disasters from back then. Hillsborough uh, obviously comes to mind in England. Heisel in Belgium when uh, soccer fans were killed in crushes. So watching what unfolded in Indonesia over the weekend was really a reminder of those awful events back then. And, and, and I'm just wondering what could have happened, right? So authorities in Indonesia continue to investigate after more than 100 people were killed and scores more injured during a crush at a soccer stadium in East Java on Saturday. The panic started, uh, or at least the event started, after fans began to invade the pitch and police responded by firing tear gas into the crowd. Now, there are lots of questions being asked tonight as to how a soccer match attended only by supporters of the home team, there weren't even visiting supporters there, descended into that chaos, resulting in one of the sport's worst ever tragedies. Among the dead, 33 kids, including one as young as three. Um, How did this happen? How do you prevent it from happening again? What should we know about the psychology of crowds? Well, one of the world's foremost experts is Clifford Stott, and he's a professor of social psychology at Keele University in the UK. He's also an expert in the psychology of crowds and what causes these kinds of horrific events, and he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. This one is uh, is hard. I mean, it, it brings back memories of lots of stadium disasters of, of time times past, but uh, this one... It's been particularly deadly. And and I guess it comes as a surprise to read headlines like this in 2022. Um, well, Ben, I, d- I don't think it is a, a surprise to, to, to see a headline like this. I mean, um, in, in Europe, we were made um, aware of these dangers very recently at the Champions League final in, uh, in Paris, where... Uh, again, it was um, very fortunate that we didn't we didn't see deaths coming from um, from from a situation involving a, a major football soccer fixture in 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 a modern stadium. So I think as the events in Indonesia demonstrate, the potentialities for these kinds of situations are ever present, and reminds us of the importance of giving priority to public safety in any mass gathering. What do we understand happened in East Java over the weekend? Well, obviously, it's very 
early um, in any attempt to analyse what went on. And this, for me as a crowd psychologist and many of my colleagues, is, is part of the problem because as many of your listeners uh, may have already seen, that the immediate analysis that's often put on this uses a word stampede that implies these people died in the stadium because of things that the crowd did, that it that it, it, it flowed into a, a kind of herd-like state of crowd psychology. And it's that inevitable dynamic of crowds that ultimately makes them dangerous. But what we need to be clear is that that is very far from the truth, that where we start to deconstruct the evidence, we see some very, very different causal factors that played very very important roles and uh, one of those clearly was the actions of the police um, and another was um, the fact that it appears that the exit gates to the stadium were locked um, and I think that what we will find in the final analysis is that this was not a tragedy caused by the crowd but a tragedy caused by crowd mismanagement because I gather it's so often when it comes to what the authorities might like to see, it is so easy to blame the crowd. And it's our tendency all the time that we live with this very salient myth of the madness of the mob. Uh, this idea that crowds are places where we lose our normal rationality, our um, civilised personality and become subsumed into this mass psychology, which is assumed to be by its very nature pathological. So it's often very easy for the authorities to fall back on that stereotype, on that myth um, and mitigate their own accountability through pathologizing and drawing on this myth of the pathology of the crowd because early indications are we know that police fired tear gas i don't think that's in doubt which is already a violation specifically in an area like a crowd um, we do believe that the gates were locked so people had no way out um, we also think that there were too many people in the stadium that it was over capacity uh, i guess these will all be confirmed but but you're that's that's a pretty potent mix especially the tear gas i think that was one of the things that stood out that that must be i mean there's a reason why that is forbidden for as for crowd control within an enclosed space like a stadium yeah so i i think uh, you you touch on on key issues there i think another thing that's particularly relevant to understand is that there were no away fans in the stadium either so this wasn't a conflict between home and away fans what many people like to label hooliganism this was a situation that, that evolved over a period of time that that clearly um, involved failures of uh, regulating flow into the stadium so it was over capacity that over capacity must have been a recognition of of a failure or an earlier failure and then into that mix we we see a pitch invasion and the police's response to that pitch invasion judging by the video evidence is that they they began by baton charging the fans uh, and that quickly escalated up into a situation where they they fired tear gas now it appears from the video evidence that that tear gas at the very least blew into um, a crowded um, terracing area, 
crowded area of, of, of the stadium. And what we've also seen is footage and photographs of the exit gates that have been bent. These big steel gates have been bent by the level of pressure. So what that suggests to me is that the tear gas um, uh, blew into or was fired into a densely crowded area of the stadium. It would then, I assume, became impossible for people to breathe in that location, forcing them to migrate out of the exits, which you'd think was a perfectly logical thing to do. If you can't breathe, that you're going to seek to get out of that area through the exit. But because the gates were locked on that exit, people couldn't escape from that area. And then the density of people trying to escape the tear gas then led to pressures that crushed people and killed them through asphyxiation so the idea that that was a stampede i think is 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 the wrong way to look at the problem what we need to look at is the problems of crowd mismanagement that appear to be um uh, evident in in the evidence that we've seen already what would you like to see emerge from an investigation into an incident such as this one? Because as you mentioned, with the Champions League final in Paris uh, not that long ago, uh, these are incidents that still occur in many places. And one could only hope that we learn from each each and every one as tragic as this one is. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a, such a challenging uh, question, Ben. I, I think w one of the things that is absolutely vital is that we don't see a knee-jerk reaction where the rush is to blame, uh, more to um, an evidence-based underpinning of the kinds of policies and practice that we place around sporting events and football in particular. Listeners may be, may be already uh, aware that uh, there are serious and ongoing problems of football violence in Indonesia and, and meeting and addressing those kinds of challenges is, is not easy. Um, it requires a sophisticated approach that isn't based on use of force and more about a political solution that starts to uh, build engagement and dialogue with the fan base, not seeing fans as part of the problem, but part of the solution and, and working over an extended period of time to negotiate a way out of uh, the management of, of these kinds of um, potentially hostile crowd events to avoid the kinds of uh, situation that we we saw in Indonesia. The problem is that that's really really difficult because everybody in this context tends to fall back on the idea that the way to control crowds is through force, is by being reactionary. But uh, in my experience, in over thirty years of studying football crowds and public order policing, that is the wrong direction of travel. Clifford Stott is our guest. He's a professor of social psychology at Keele University in Britain and an expert in the psychology of crowds and what causes tragedies such as the one we saw over the weekend in East Java in Indonesia, perhaps the deadliest stadium disaster in modern history with more than 125 people killed uh, during a crush at a soccer stadium there in East Java. Um, a lot of lessons were learned in the 80s, I remember, uh, from, from the Heisel, from, from uh, the disaster in England, the disaster in Belgium. Um, how, how much has crowd control changed in the last 30 years when it comes to these kinds of events? Because it feels like there have been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of progress made, uh, even though we continue to see incidents that raise concerns. 
Yeah, a, a, a great deal of, uh, of progress was, was made, um, certainly in the European context, um, as a consequence of HISO. And I, I think one of the things to highlight, Ben, is the, the tragedy here about how in this environment we, we kind of have to wait for tragedies before we act to deal with the issue of public safety. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could get into the place where we could make these changes before people before people die and I, I think part of that change is is to understand that the failures are not of the crowd um, so in the wake of the Heysel Stadium disaster there was recognition that Heysel was also a failure of policing um, and in particular international police cooperation and measures were put in place to uh, try to to bring policing uh, forward and to to think in a more sophisticated way about the kinds of issues that we are dealing with when we're dealing with football crowds. Um, and a lot of the work I've been involved in was was contributing to advancing our scientific understanding of the the dynamics of crowds and and, and why they uh, behave in the way that they do. And it, it was captured for me, I think, it, in, in part in, in terminology. You use the term, for example, crowd control. Well, we 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 start to think these days about crowd management. Mm-hmm. Crowd, crowds don't need control. They need to be managed properly. It's not the job of the authorities to control or suppress crowds. It's to manage the situation in ways that maintain public safety and public order. And that that might sound a mute point, a, you know, minor issue, but it's actually really quite fundamental. Yeah, actually, I, th- I think it's probably essential because it, it would change the way the authorities themselves view their duties, right? I mean, if your duty is to manage a crowd, it's to make sure that it is uh, it is allowed to do what it needs to do safely. And to control, exactly right. c- control it is to, is to pen it in when this is where we see things like what happened in East Java over the weekend. Yeah, it's absolutely about um, about changing the mindset of the authorities so that they develop proper strategies and have the right resources in order to to manage the dynamics of crowds in ways that maintain public safety and and, and, and public uh, public order. And overwhelmingly, at the moment, I think at a global level, what we see is a situation where the dominant assumption is that crowds are inherently disorderly, and the main thing that we need to do is to control them to suppress that natural tendency towards disorder. But ironically, Ironically, that actually often creates the circumstances where disorder emerges and public safety is compromised. What we find is that if we change the mindset, public safety comes to the fore, facilitating the legitimate behaviours and intentions of people in the crowd uh, becomes a priority. And what we see is is a lot safer events and events that are less likely to become problematic in terms of disorder. Are there examples out there of what this would look like? Because one would imagine in East Java, you, the initial problem was people was a pitch invasion, was people coming onto the field, and that had to be controlled uh, or managed, better yet. Um, but to then create a panic would be the worst outcome. Um, are there examples of how that how that's done properly? Yeah, for sure. Um, there are many examples, but again, Ben, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to pick you up on your terminology. Of course. Yes. I mean, w- one of the assumptions is that crowds panic. They they don't. Uh, right. When we look at the evidence, of course, in dangerous situations, some people in crowds 
panic but in the main what we see is a lot of resilience a lot of capability of people in the crowd to respond to the emergency situation in ways that actually enhance the safety of others around them so this idea of, of collective or mass panic is, is largely a myth based on our misunderstandings of, of crowds but where we replace that misunderstanding with a more accurate understanding of, of how crowds operate psychologically and behaviorally what we started to do is to work with police forces to develop means of communication and dialogue. We need to recognise that the, the incident in, in Indonesia is set in a context. The conflict between football fans and the police is, is, is embedded in, in an ongoing situation that is, li- is likely to have been extremely polarised. So the antagonisms between fans and police that in part, and the clubs that in part led to the pitch invasion in the first place Need, need to have been addressed. It's, it's the failure of addressing that polarisation that has culminated in this situation. So one of the things that we try to do is to work with police forces in clubs to build better relationships of dialogue and communication. So the police forces that we, we work with uh, all over the world have, have developed specialist what we call dialogue police or dialogue units whose job it is to, to, to build relationships of trust and confidence with groups that are generally quite antagonistic towards the police. And that enables the police to handle crowds in a way that is far more effective. And indeed, I'm I'm doing work currently in in the US, uh, working with American police forces to help them to develop this capability in the wake of uh, the protests and the disorder that they experienced um, in in, uh, 2020 in the wake of uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. Clifford Stott, uh, fascinating. Thank you so much. I will keep the terminology in mind uh, as we talk about crowds on this show in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.